episode 11 of the End of Sport podcast. We're really excited to have Dirk Hayhurst on the show. But as always, if you're enjoying the show, feel free to like, share, and leave a review on iTunes. Or give us a follow on Twitter or Instagram at the end of sport pod. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas about future episodes, shoot us an email at theendofsport at gmail.com. Dirk Hayhurst is a former Major League Baseball pitcher with the Toronto Blue Jays and San Diego Padres, as well as a longtime minor leaguer. He is a former Sportsnet and TBS commentator and the author of four books, The Bullpen Gospels, Out of My League, Wild Pitches, and Bigger Than the Game. Dirk, welcome to the show. Gosh, thanks for having me. It is a true pleasure. Uh, we love having athletes and former athletes on the show, uh, unless they've become, I don't know, coaches or uh, administrative types, uh, in which case they maybe lose some of their athlete cred in my eyes. Uh, <laughs> that is not the case with you. So we are th- absolutely thrilled to have you here. Uh, but before we get into all that good stuff, I always like to know, how are you coping with the pandemic in Stowe, Ohio? Uh, yeah, so I actually just started a new job um, last week. And wow. this is the first, I know, right? And it's, it's not like, golly, I really want to do this job. But uh, when you see the numbers of people getting filing for unemployment benefits, the economy turning south, you know, you take any job. So it, it felt like the right move. Uh, the, pandemic, the pandemic caught me um, in between jobs. Uh, and I was just waiting for that perfect job to come along because I had time on my side. And then suddenly you're like, I'll be lucky to take anything. And I started completely remote. Um, first time I've ever done this. Uh, we don't even know when we'll see each other in person. And we don't even say that anymore. We don't say uh, face-to-face. We say mask-to-mask. I can't wait to meet you, mask-to-mask, you know. Oh, really? Yeah, wow. it's, it's kind of a joke, you know. And it's one of those, it's a marketing position. With, you know, it's an agency position. So you're going to meet clients, and we can't. So not only do we have that struggle of a brave new world uh, switching to remote work, but most of the clients that we serve, um, here in, in a rural community like Stowe, Ohio, they don't go for all this newfangled digital tech. <laughs> so sure, sure, so I can imagine. Like, you got to babysit them too. Um, but I, I am ready to be. I mean, the weather uh, needs to break. I need to get outdoors. It's, it, I feel like The Shining or something right now. It's coming to its conclusion, and someone's going to die. But I need to get uh-huh. out uh, and, and live my life a little bit because we've been shut in for quite some time. But that's Pardon. terrible. I, I am so lucky. That, you know, because for our listeners who are unfamiliar, um, Dirk played for the Durham Bulls, uh, probably one of the most famous minor league uh, franchises in the entire country. Uh, so you know exactly the area that I live in. And so you, you can probably remember that at this time of year, the weather's pretty good in Durham. Um, yeah. And so we've been lucky. We've been lucky during the pandemic because we haven't been shut inside and we've been able to kind of get out and it's beautiful around here. So that's been the saving grace for us. And I, I truly, I feel deep empathy for you not having that being up in the north. Because I mean, I'm from Toronto. Um, so, you know, I know what it's like to be in that part of the world. And it's, it's bleak yeah, <laughs> at the well, best of know, times. It wouldn't be so bad if it would just stop. Like tomorrow, it's supposed to snow here in Ohio. For what, or, why? Like, why, why tease us like that? But uh, that's it's where brutal. we're at. So it could be worse. It's true. It could be worse. Um, all right. Well, let's get right into the baseball stuff. Because uh, there's actually a lot to talk about, both in, just in terms of 
the myriad experiences you've had, and also the kind of current events that are unfolding with respect to baseball. Um, but before we get, uh, get into the, the nitty gritty, I'd love for you maybe just to paint a little bit of a picture for us and for our listeners about the world of baseball, maybe like regu- the regular world of baseball, not the pandemic world. Um, <laughs> so yeah, because I figure that's a whole brave new world. Um, so can you explain to our listeners the relationship between minor league and major league baseball, the way that a player's career might typically progress, and where the union fits in all that? Sure. So uh, minor league baseball is kind of this like brutal boot camp experience that never really comes to a conclusion unless you are spit out the other side or you make it to the big leagues. And for a lot of, I imagine, listeners or fans, even hardcore fans of baseball, I don't think they really understand that about minor league baseball. But basically how it goes is uh, you, you as a child, who you want to be a baseball player, you will fantasize about being a baseball player. And you could take this experience to any sport, soccer, football, whatever your chosen sport is, but this specific example would be baseball. You grow up wanting to be a major league baseball player. In your mind, the minors don't even exist. This is not a thing that you've really ever heard of. Maybe you've seen a minor league baseball game and it was cute and they were professionals and you just assumed that they would all play in the big leagues at some point. But The minors are not something you aspire to as a child. You aspire to greatness in its highest form, in its most richest and beloved uh, and gilded form, and that's, of course, the majors. So you'll you'll start at maybe age five or six in your first league, and you'll play until you're 18, and that's around the time that most kids are first eligible to get drafted. Uh, Some Latin American players or overseas players will come in earlier than that, and they'll go into the minors, but most players... And in the States will get drafted either as a senior in high school around age 18 or then again uh, when they are in their junior or senior year of college. So for me specifically, I took the long road and I got drafted as a senior in college. And when I got drafted, I thought I was just going to ride off into the sunset on some pony uh, and money was going to fall from heaven. It's going to sign this <laughs> sponsorship contract or something like that. Again, because you know, even up to the age of college education, I still assumed that signing this pro contract was like the golden ticket. I was one of the few, the proud, uh, the the special snowflakes that would live happily ever after because they'd accomplished this thing. That is not how it went. I went off to uh, low-level A-ball in Eugene, Oregon. I got paid less than $300 a month. Um, I went home from that experience in debt. We lived in a hotel. Um, it, the hotel was paid for, and that sounds nice and everything, but we had no money for food. Uh, we also didn't have mini fridges or kitchens. So they put us in this, this hotel, but we had to figure out a way to feed ourselves. So we would take styrofoam coolers and we would fill it up with like peanut butter and jelly, whatever wouldn't spoil because you'd have to leave for road games and milk would go bad if you just put it in ice water for, you know, a seven day road trip. So stuff like this, you know, these are, these are kind of the working conditions. I remember the first locker room I was ever in, uh, it was just painted two by fours with chicken wire dividers. um, And they hung your uniform on the chicken wire and there would be some random seepage of like, you know, uh, the kind of water that would come from a crack in a basement, just kind of seeping across the floor at any given time. 
Um, and that we sounds healthy, out, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. It was a prime living situation. Um, and of course, only a few people died from touching it, so it wasn't that bad. Then, <laughs> uh, no, it was you know it was just a kind of a mind blowing experience. And I remember we'd go out to the bullpen and uh, we'd fight for who got to sit in a chair because there wouldn't be there wouldn't be enough chairs out in the bullpen. They'd be lawn chairs, you know, that those kind of punched out plastic chairs. And if you lean back too far, you'd snap the legs off. So you know, there's this attrition rate on chairs. As this, you know, we would like lobby to get new lawn chairs out in the bullpen um, so we could all sit instead of standing out there or sitting cross-legged on the dirt. Um, so when you pitched, you'd always have like a brown dirt stain on your butt, which is awesome. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it was, and I could go on and on about the living conditions, but at some point, let's just say to answer your question, at some point, these minor leaguers are going to work themselves into the big leagues. And you're probably thinking, well, that was the lowest levels, right? It's going to weed out those awful kids. By the time I made it to AAA and I was living in an upscale town like Portland, uh, Oregon, one of my favorite towns in America, uh, I was still making roughly take home maybe $700 a month, you know, and the, or, or, or you know, roughly around like $450 a pay or something like wow. every two weeks, you know, so, so probably maybe, maybe around a thousand. Um, and I'm living with three guys, one of which had major league time. And we have to find a place to live. Well, there's no housing stipend, so we have to find an apartment in Portland, which if you look at the housing prices there now are outrageous. It's the Silicon Forest now, so the pricing is going way up. Um, and it was, it was high then, too. Um, but any, at any rate, you know, you've got three guys sleeping on the floor because we can't afford to get the apartment furnished. So we would take sleeping bags and we'd put them in the corners and um, we had to like debate whether we could get beds or if we couldn't get beds or if we could just use foam on the floor. I was writing my first book then, and I wrote that book, uh, sleeping on an air mattress in the living room using an ironing board as my table as the dining room table and the kitchen table. We stole food from the locker room to eat at home so we didn't burn through our paycheck. And at some point in this experience, at some point, you're going to go from that from, from that lifestyle of, of stealing from locker rooms to get food, sleeping on air mattresses, picking up extra clothes at Goodwill, trying to live outside of the ballpark to untold riches, if you make it. When I got called up to the majors, my paycheck went from that pathetic thousand something a month to you know, twenty eight hundred that night plus seven hundred dollars in cash put right into my hand plus I'm in a five star hotel in downtown San Francisco plus I'll be flying out executive class in a private chartered jet back to the Padres field to do the whole experience again in another town, and that is the league minimum, right? It is wow. it is unbelievable the wealth differential, and I say that to you not as some kind of um, you know democratic liberal who talks about billionaires ruining the world. I said, there's a person who went from literally rags to riches in the blink of an eye just because somebody got traded. Uh, and I, I remember distinctly after a week of it being there and realizing, that, you know, trying to realize, I was like a thimble trying to take in an ocean of, of new experiences. I was sitting at the, uh, the top of the the Sky Lounge bar at the Marriott Hotel that's right next to the down Petco Park right downtown. 
So Petco Park's this huge cathedral of baseball. Really, it's a towering, whitewashed um, mecca for baseball fans in Southern California. It's gorgeous. It's next to the ocean. You know, they have 100-foot-tall banners of the all-stars that are on the team hanging on the walls outside facing the streets. And then there's this beautiful five-star hotel, which is nicer than anything you'd get to even look at in the minors, you know. I mean, the, the place we stayed at when I was in High A in Lake Elsinore had bullet holes in the cinder block walls. You know, that was just – and that was your home field, for God's sakes. You go, to this, <laughs> wow. you go to this park, and there's a rooftop bar that only special people in special rooms can access, right? The rest of the population has to wait – in a uh, barricaded line with a bellhop as a bouncer in the lobby, letting people up. So I'm up there and I'm sipping a, a white Russian because, you know, the big Lebowski, of course I am. And I'm just sitting there drinking it. And one of the other players is up there and he's, he's had more big league time. And I just make this remark to him that this is just too much. I, I don't even, I mean, I can't even, I can't even think like this, that I have this kind of money now. It's, I mean, I'm so happy I have it, but don't you feel like it's a little unfair to all the other guys that are trying to get here? This is me, right? Like yeah. Stupid, naive me saying these things, you know? And he just, yeah. looks, he looks at me and he says, are you fucking stupid? We deserve, <laughs> we deserve all of this. We survived. We, we made it. Screw them. That's the way this has to be. It's kill or be killed, you know? And, and we, we, you know, we should take, we should just bleed them dry because there's no mercy for any of us. And that's, that's how it should be. And so you, you go from this world of everything you can get into a one bag because you got to pay for the carry-on to fly to spring training, right? To a world where take anything you want because it's all paid for. And here's some cash just to make you feel better about us carrying your bag. You know, it is, it's a wild differential. And if you experience it like I have, you will you will never be able to stomach that minor leaguers get paid this cents on the dollar pittance that they do for what is essentially uh, a sunk cost for most of them. Because the, the amount of players that actually make it to the top, to the majors, to get to, to get paid back for all the years that, that they put in. It, it took me five years to get to the majors. And had that September call-up been the only thing that I experienced in baseball, it wouldn't have paid me back what a standard journalism degree out of college would have paid me over that same course of time, cumulatively speaking. I wouldn't be able to brag about the journalism degree. I get that. But I at least would have been able to pay all my bills and not go into debt. And that's the reality of baseball. That's just, it's incredible. Um, everything you said is incredible. And there's a ton that I want to pick up on here. Uh, the first thing is, because this is something that we talk a lot about on this show, and so I'd love to hear, I, I wasn't even planning to have this conversation, but you, it sort of popped into my mind as soon as you mentioned it. You said, you know, you were drafted as a senior in college. I'd love for you to say just a little bit about the experience of being um, a college baseball player, perhaps versus a minor leaguer. Because we talk quite critically about like exploitation in um, college sports. Often we're talking about the big revenue sports and baseball is kind of in a funny position there, right? Because there's some revenue involved. Certainly games are on ESPN now, but it's also a lot of the players are not on full scholarships, if not most, the vast majority is my understanding. Um, so I'm, I'm curious about kind of the contrast there for you. Well, you know, when we talk about college, we have to understand that not all colleges are created equal. You can yes. get drafted out of college, but what division are you in? What league are you in? Um, 
in the SEC, the ACC, the MAC, which is what I was in, which was considered a weaker division. Uh, and most of that's predicated on football teams, which are the primary revenue driver for any college. Uh, in fact, when you start to pay attention to what's happening in higher academia, as far as funding, um, look at how much lack of football right now will end up hurting these teams or, or these um, these colleges if football isn't there to generate the kind of revenue that it's known to generate. Yes. So, um, so I, I'm playing in a max school for Kent State University. You know, I wanted to get drafted more than anything. And I didn't get drafted my junior year. And as soon as you do not get drafted your junior year, it's, it's the kind of the equivalent of what your car is worth as soon as you roll it off the lot for that first time. As soon as it crosses from new to used, you lose like a third of it. Well, or of its value. For a junior to become a senior in college, as soon as you cross from juniorhood to seniorhood, you lose like 80% of your bargaining power. And that's because the school or the team that drafts you no longer has to pay for your remaining portion of your college. And they know that. So here I am, I get drafted in like the eighth round and I get $15,000 as a wow. senior. If you get drafted in the eighth round as a junior, you get 125000 That was the numbers when I was playing. So, yeah. you know, there were guys that were just a year younger than me and that's all. Really, that's all. They just had an extra year to, to, to sacrifice in the altar of professional baseball. But that was worth, at minimum, 100 grand more. So when you get drafted, you want to get drafted as early as possible. If you're a senior in high school, then they have to buy your entire college education that you could have gotten a scholarship for, conceivably. So if you are my talent and you get drafted as a, as a, um, as a high school senior, you're looking at maybe 500,000, 600,000 for that for that window of your life because they're getting a bargain on your time. They get to train you the professional way. Well, the thing is about me is that I had to lie to get drafted. Um, and this is kind of a revealing thing about how baseball grades talent, or at least how it graded talent when I was in the system. So I only really had two pitches. My entire college career, I had two pitches. I had a fastball and a curveball. Not even a changeup, for God's sakes. <laughs> um, but when scouts come to look at you, they want to see that you have projectability for a high ceiling. There are guys that have great major league careers who could not get drafted out of college anymore. Mark Burley comes to mind. Um, Trevor Hoffman, who is one of the all-time great closers. He's in the Hall of Fame. Um, yep. I, I had the pleasure of playing with him. He threw so slow that he would not have projected to be a good big leaguer and if you would have taken him at the height of his career, throwing in the mid to low 80s and being one of the most successful closers in baseball and put him on a college field and put him in front of a body of draft uh, uh, scouts, they wouldn't have picked him. They would have looked at him and said, this guy couldn't make it, right? So keep that in mind, right? Because as a player, you know that you need to project a certain ability level in order for a scout to say this guy could conceivably help the big league team because just like you aren't thinking about life in the minors, neither are they. They're thinking about what they can draft to have a result in the major league field. So what I would do is I would go out and uh, while I was warming up with the catcher, I would call a bunch of, I would like flash hand signals at the catcher. Now, for those of you who don't know baseball very well, 
when you do your warm-up pitches, typically you will tell the catcher what you're going to throw by a series of glove gestures. So if I flick my glove forward, that's a fastball. If I do kind of like a a, a curling motion with it, that would be a curveball. If I pull it back, that's a changeup. If I snap it to one side, that might be a cutter or a slider. I didn't throw any of those things, but I would, <laughs> I would, I would snap it sideways, cutter, slider, you know, split finger, whatever. And then I just, the last couple pitches, I would just throw it as hard as I fucking could right to the backstop so I could juice the radar gun. Because what the scouts wanted to see was, oh, this guy is developing a slider and a cutter and a split finger. And I saw him touch 93 on the gun. That's big league stuff, right? That's what's going to go in the report. And once it goes into that report and it goes up the chain, those people who didn't see me, they have no idea. But once you can get someone to believe that you have that talent, and then you get good results, which I did. I mean, I was I was a Kent State Hall of Famer, I, a two-time award winner for the coveted Steve Stone Award, which is a big deal at my college. And I led, you know, the, the team in strikeouts and almost set the wins record. And so I obviously could get the job done, but that doesn't matter if you don't project well. So it was this delicate balance of like lying about your ability level based on what you actually used to get the results you did. And had I not convinced the scout from the Padres that the reason uh, I didn't throw a slider one day is because I had a blood blister on my finger, not that I don't throw a slider ever, if I couldn't get him to believe that, I probably don't get drafted. So most of my career is based on a lie of trying to convince pros that have a very limited sample of, of, of me that I had more than I had really had to offer. And to prove the point of, Sometimes it's, it isn't the projectability. Sometimes it's the person, the luck, the opportunity that actually gets you to the big leagues. I'm living proof of that. I should have never made it to the pros in the first place. That's amazing. That's an amazing story, really. Um, I got to hand it to you. Why not? Uh, pull it over on them. Uh, and, and as you say, because you see this across all these different sports, right? They're always projecting. I follow basketball pretty closely, right? And you see the same phenomenon. These guys that graduate as college seniors, right? They're in trouble when it comes to the draft because they've, they've been subjected to four years of film right and so they, they they think they know everything about their game and so it's like harder for them to make it even though they're still young kids they're still 22 years old and they have tons of room to grow uh, as athletes but it's the it's the 18 year old or 19 year old that no one knows anything about it's actually easier you know does better in the draft um so yeah i totally <laughs> yeah. see where you're coming from you know as I, as I as i think about your answer i realize i don't think i even answered your question like the difference between um what it's like in the pros like the talent level there versus what it's like in Oh, that's football. interesting. That's interesting. Right. So you know there's, there's a striking difference there, huh? There is. I, I would say, you know, when you uh, there's a big difference between an 18-year-old okay, so an 18-year-old senior in high school, that's an adult, right? Compared to the rest yeah. of the but an 18-year-old in college is a child. A 21-year-old in in college is an adult, right? But a sure. 25-year-old, 26-year-old who's been facing the best that the world can, you know, <laughs> the best liars that the world can muster into baseball, right? To face you every day, the best supposed <laughs> talent. Yeah. Um, that's a, di- that's a totally different world. And then you think about it again. So you take that best and you refine it down to the best of that best is in the majors. And then among that grouping, there is an elite few that are just all time gods of the sport. And they're out there on top of their game, you know, and they would be on top of it anywhere on any field you could put them on. And when you're in college and you feel really gr- good about yourself, um, 
those feelings are officially irrelevant as soon as you set foot on the dirt of, of a professional field. And I remember that distinctly because I, I got to pro ball for the first time and I felt a little ashamed because I wasn't in a good conference when I got drafted. I, I didn't throw as hard as some of the other guys. I didn't play in these big um, semi games that they did, these bowl game type games, you know, of, of uh, the College World Series feeders. Uh, and these guys are like, oh, you played for Kent? I heard they weren't very good. I mean, they would just, they would just whip it out and slap you with it, right? That you weren't that <laughs> right. So we all go out, we all put on the same new uniform, right? And we all go out on the same field and we're all on the same team and the same organization. And to really put a fine point on that, scouting director comes out and says, some of you are dirt bags. Some of you are longhorns. Some of you are flashes. Some of you are horn frogs. I got news for you. Ain't that shit anymore. Right now you ain't done nothing. You're all a bunch of minor league meat bags to me. We're going to see which one of you live. You know, just like that. Like, welcome to the, the army, right? Exactly. And, and boy, did we eat that up. Oh, my God. <laughs> no, like, no. Oh, my God. We're no, so awful. We're badass. That. We're badasses no. now, you know. Oh, no. uh, this is, and, and this is how pro guys talk to each other, right? And, and from that point forward, uh, you really do adopt this mindset of the grind. You become it. It becomes romantic to you. And if you don't like any particular thing, like you don't like bullet holes in the wall, play better. You don't like peanut butter and jelly, play better. You don't like not being able to go to the rooftop bar, play better. You don't like going into debt, play better. It all comes down to that. You haven't done anything yet. And, it sounds, and yeah. go ahead. So, you know, no. no, I was just saying, it sounds like pure, it's like pure bootstrapism here, right? Like, I mean, I've just the entire way you've been describing the world of baseball, it's like it's the American dream, right? This idea yes. you're going to get to that pot of gold at the end, but you're going to go through hell to get there, right? Like the absolute worst conditions imaginable. And then instead of not, not, this is not you I'm speaking to, but actually what you're articulating with the larger system, right? You go through hell. So you would imagine that if you go through hell like that, you would have some kind of empathy for all the people, like the vast majority of the people who are suffering through that hell. But instead you're sitting in that hotel, just being like, Hey, we deserve this. Now we yep. made it. So fuck them. Right? <laughs> when you when you, you think that that might build some kind of empathy um, and lead to maybe like people pushing for better conditions for those people who are suffering, but like that's not what we see in America, and obviously that's not what we see in this world of baseball either. And actually, brings me to something that I'd love for you to to, to get back to, which is the union piece, right? Because like the way I talk about sports and labor, typically I'm thinking unions are a good thing, right? Like unions uh -huh. are going to push back against capital and try to produce better working conditions for the labor who is unionized. And yet my understanding uh, from you and having talked to you before, it's not really how it works in major league baseball. And that's partly because those minor league players, the people who are suffering the worst working conditions aren't unionized. Correct. Uh, among other things. Uh, for example, Major League Baseball is unionized. Major League Baseball yes. has the um, the biggest war chest of money for particular like arbitration or any of that stuff that they would need to go into you know a fight with with Major League Baseball versus the players union. So the owners versus the players union is really what it comes down to. So Major League Baseball has this ridiculous pile of money. You know, in excess, I think it's around 400 to 600 million. It's somewhere in there per, per player, per active player. So think about that. Divide that over the active players that are in the union. And that's more than 
you know, that's well over a million per player, I believe, something like that, or close to it. Think about any other union that has that kind of economic firepower per person it represents. I don't think there is any other one that compares. Um, and they they get what they get, not just because they have this large sum of money at their disposal. They also get it because they bargain their rights away. And by their rights, I mean minor leaguers' rights. If you're not in the players' union, you shouldn't be under the umbrella of their bargaining rights. But for some reason, Major League Baseball's player union can bargain away the rights of those amateurs that have not yet been drafted and those amateurs that have been drafted by setting restrictions on signing bonuses that they can sign for, um, draft slot money, and other considerations that go to players yet to be drafted and certainly are, are not entitled in any way, shape, or form to become future big leaguers. So they have no, nothing to do with the big league union, really. But they're like, it's like, um, you know, why punish me when you can punish this other person over here? Here, I'll, let, I'll beat him up. Go right ahead. He's yours. You know, and that's kind of how it works. But the funny thing is, is that in this day and age of instant communication, I mean, right now, think about your life right now. Zoom. Okay. You yep. get 50 people together on Zoom. You can be anywhere in the world you want. You just invite them. There has never been a time in human history where it has been easier for you to get a group of like-minded people together for a common cause, ever. And Major League Baseball is still in no danger of minor league baseball unionizing itself and pushing back. None. And that doesn't have to do uh, with the fact that there aren't some minor league baseball players out there that think this is unfair. I don't want to get paid $300 a month anymore. I'd like to be able to feed my family and pay my phone bill and not have to make a choice between like ramen or air tonight. I would like to be able to have decent living standards because I've worked my entire life to hone this skill to get this chance. I deserve at least a modicum of respect via the paycheck that I'm given. They don't see it that way. What they see it is this, this incredible mental trick. They see it as this romantic experience of suffering for a greater cause. It's, it's almost delusional, right? Mm, yeah. I'm, I'm fine with $1.27 an hour, you know, which is, um, <laughs> I, is off. It's like uh, it's third world in, in kind of a, a, in a respect. And I'm fine with that because. When I make it, it's going to be this badge of courage, this like grand accomplishment that I survived. And if you don't like it, play better. You want to whine about it? Get the fuck out of here. I'll take your spot. You know, I'm going to bust my ass. And that mentality starts before you get into professional baseball. It's always been there. It's kind of a, a mixture of the American psychology as a whole to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps which would be a, a noble and respectable thing if the system wasn't so skewed against you that really it's just luck. You know, it has nothing, your, your work ethic is matched by everybody else's work ethic, your talent matched by everybody else's talent. It really just comes down to you being a commodity now. And if your number gets called or it doesn't, it's a lottery. And you don't just sacrifice that potential earnings through those years where you try to get to the top. Those are young years of your life you never get back. From 18 to 23, 24, 25, you can't get those years back. And I've experienced this myself. I mean, when I popped out on the other side of sports, 
I had uh, a nice run considering, um, you know, I got to play until I was in my thirties. I rolled up a little bit of money and then I went into the professional sector and I had no experience. And I couldn't just walk into an HR department and say, here's my fucking baseball experience. Make me the president. Who else has played the big leagues around here? Come on, you know, I can do that. No one cares. So what am I? I'm a 33-year-old entry-level employee ready to make what my friends who got their college degrees made 15 years ago. And that's, that's, that's kind of it. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's amazing. Um, it's, it's, it's actually still hard for me to fully um, sort of understand even in listening to you, cause you've done a beautiful job of breaking it down, but I'm, I'm trying to get a sense of where exactly that mentality starts, you know, this idea, this idea that, um, that's like that suffering is noble. You, you articulated how, like there's this, this boot camp mentality, right? When you start in the minors, um, is that like, are you seeing that in college baseball too, in high school? Like, is this a function of like how we're teaching our kids to play sports as well, right? This idea that they have to always be sacrificing for the team, like their own well-being um, is always secondary to this kind of so-called larger cause so that it becomes second nature by the time, you know, young athletes become minor leaguers. Is that what's going on? I love that question um, because I think that question is important and not just to people who play professional baseball. I think it's important to everybody. Um, there is there's this kind of interesting thing about the, the the young athlete and and the young American athlete. I, it's probably this way for other cultures as well, but you know I can only speak to my own on this. Um, but I get invited for whatever reason. People are dumb enough to invite me to speak at events, and uh, uh, I get invited to speak to um, athletic advisor groups and uh, high school coaches in my area. And I always tell them that uh, the worst thing you can do is encourage your, the, the person under your purview, your, your athlete, to sell out, go all in, sacrifice everything, focus wholly on the sport, because that is just a dumb bet. It's a really dumb bet. Uh, you know, sports is, is, is great. It teaches you how to overcome adversity how to work in a team, uh, how to rise to a challenge and push yourself to the limit. Well, so do a lot of other things. And I think we forget that. You know, it's not easy to become first chair in band. It's not easy to win the lead role in a play. It's not easy to get a scholarship for beautiful artworks. It's not easy. It's hard. It's not easy to hold down a job after school and try and get your grades up for a college degree. It's not easy. It's hard. But the thing is, it's not sexy either. It's not romantic. I don't watch it on TV every night. I'm not entertained by it. It's not the uh, gilded icon, uh, the, uh, the, the religious symbol of nationalism that I've been led to worship. You know, it's not American like apple pie. It's, it's different, it, but it's still the same. It's just not loved the same way that this kind of sacrifice, sacrificial chase is. So I always tell uh, coaches, now, the worst thing you can do is is train them to shut down and cleave off all these other things that at some point in their life will be detrimental to them being successful. And to put a fine point on that, let me just tell you a quick story. So Please, yeah. when, uh, when I was in high school, um, just, just going into high school, my dad fell off the roof of my house and paralyzed himself. 
Oh no. Wow. I'm sorry. And, <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I, it's, I mean, that's very nice of you. It's don't, don't feel too bad for me, everyone. And this happened quite a long time ago and I've had plenty of therapy and drinking and, you know, the recovery. So I'm good. But, um, when I, when I was in high school, he paralyzed himself, just, just going to high school, 13. So right on the precipice. And I remember I was the only one at home at the time. I, saw, I was there. I heard him fall. I found him in a heap and he looks at me, you know, on the ground, run out to find him. And I, I see him on the ground. He looks at me and he says, you know, walk away. I don't want you to see me die. Right. So I run out of the house and I call 911 and the ambulance gets lost. There's no internet back then yet. Right. It's not a thing. It's, you have a GPS. So I hear that I'm, on, I'm out waving them down. And when I get back, my dad's passed out. I don't know if he's dead or not. And I wave the ambulance to him and they take him. And they just leave me there at the house by myself. And I'm just shooting baskets until nightfall because I can't, I can't calm down from the experience. Well, yeah. you know, fast forward a few years, you know, I'm... I, I don't have a lot of self-confidence. I'm dealing with anxiety stuff. It, high school was hard for me, right? And I'm on this, I have this sports ability, right? I, I'm, a, I'm a good baseball player. And I joined this team and I've, uh, I've got this coach uh, that is phenomenal. It's phenomenal. Very open, always encouraging, open door policy, knows what I'm going through, is there to comfort me. And it turns out that this coach is not my baseball coach. It's my speech and debate coach. I did speech and debate because a guidance counselor thought that that would be a good outlet for me dealing with some off-the-field emotional stuff, which I very clearly was. My baseball coach is a nice guy, but he didn't want to hear any whining. You know, if you want to make it here, you got to be tough. You got to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you need to deal with your crap. Has no place in the ball field, right? But the thing is, is that the crap that we carry with us in the real world will crush our ability to be successful on field. And the crap that you carry into the workplace will crush your ability to get that promotion. Being a human means that you get hit from all angles, not just the stuff that's hit back at you when you're on the baseball field. Um, and you need to be able to address that. I've watched plenty of guys with amazing sports success that completely implode once they leave the game or when they're on the field and their wife ends up banging some other guy on the team or they get caught in a scandal or their dad dies and they're crippled from it. Um, you know, they get robbed, their agent screws them. Life happens. It's complex. It's not as simple as a little rule book the umpire carries around in his breast pocket. And if you're not preparing for that, what the fuck are you doing with baseball? You know, it's just a vehicle to get through some portions of life, but it's not the only way to travel. And if you have a lot of skills and ability, then you should pursue them. Coaches should tell kids, yes, this is not an all or nothing. This is yes and. You can play baseball and be really good at math. You can play baseball and go pursue that scholarship in engineering. In fact, you should, and that should be the primary goal because it's a perishable skill with a very sh short shelf life. And once you're out of it, it doesn't really translate to much. So it's just one part of who you are and it should always be addressed as such. And quite honestly, had I not treated it that way in my life, I would never have made it. 
I mean, when I was in the minors and I was sputtering out in my fourth year and I was wondering what the hell I was doing with my life and I was coming home broke, sleeping on grandma's floor, I remembered that when I was in high school, I liked to write plays. And I, write, I wrote scripts for speech and debate. And I thought, you know what? I'd like to turn this baseball experience into a book, even if only the only person who reads it is me. So I started writing about it. Writing, this is a skill. Like, you know, baseball players in high school used to make fun of me for being in speech and debate. It was, it was gay, you know, it was stupid. Like, where are you hanging out with that? You know, it I made me feel better. And when baseball got hard for me and I wondered what the hell I'd done with my life, four years in my pro career, guess what? It made me feel better again. So much better, in fact, that it allowed me to take this burden of not making anything out of my life with sports. It felt like it was going sideways. It allowed me to resurrect a career on the rocks. A year and a half later, I'm in the majors. So, that's incredible. Yeah, no, that's a, listen, I, and I got I to gotta pick up on some of this stuff you're saying because um, it seems to me that not only because I think one of the things you're getting at is that baseball, you're saying that baseball doesn't really prepare people for life, right? That's one aspect of it. Like you, you're, you channel all of yourself into this baseball experience. Maybe you're one of the lucky few who gets the big payoff, but if you're not, um, it's, it's hamper in some ways, it's almost hampering your experience coming out of it. It's certainly not nurturing you as, as you put it as a human being, but that's what I want to actually push harder on that to, to ask. Um, not only does it not, prepare you for life, but it seems to me that it is actively detrimental in some fairly profound ways. Um, and, and a big part of that is actually the emotional stuff that you're, that you're touching on. And, and another part of it is the identity stuff. And what, what I mean by that is, it sounds to me like a couple of threads are coming together here. One is a masculinity piece, right? Like you're talking about homophobic language that is part of the culture. And I'm certainly not surprised by that. Um, so I think that there's something to that. Like we, it's it's in the rearview mirror a little bit now because there's so much that's ensued since 2016. But I mean, we, we had the phrase, the, the phrase locker room talk was everywhere in 2016, right? Because Trump <laughs> yeah. used it. And yeah. I think for me, a problem I had with that discourse around it, um, obviously like I, I, so I, I, I completely condemn what the president did and said, etc. Um, there's no ambivalence there. But my my problem on in addition to that was that we were getting this kind of discourse from athletes like, how dare he bes besmirch the locker room, right? That's not <laughs> yeah. locker room talk. And to me, that was nonsense because I was thinking like, no, he's correctly using the term locker room talk. I mean, the problem is that he's um, he's condoning sexual violence, We're not uh, in the locker room. Yeah. misogyny, yeah. right? All of that. But like, but he's right that that's the kind of talk that actually takes place in the locker yeah. room. Um, so I'm just kind of, A, I'm curious to hear a little bit about how you kind of see masculinity kind of being built in those type of locker room spaces. But then the other thing I'm thinking about here too is um, in terms of how sport produces types of human beings, you know, and, and again, you really powerfully speaking about your own life experiences, you're talking about how it doesn't nurture people uh, emotionally, right? And so like yeah. you, like so many others have these traumatic experiences in their childhood um, and they take all different forms, right? But you very, um, you powerfully painted the picture of what your experience was. So we, we take those things with us. And then when we have, when we're thrust into 
these environments that foster anxiety and trauma and re-traumatize us uh, and having people scream at you, by the way, right, is an example of that. Having someone belittle your worth as a human being, that activates those kind of traumas and anxieties, et cetera. It certainly doesn't nurture you into a person more fully capable of confronting those experiences. So it makes sense to me what you're saying, that like you were able to succeed as a baseball player precisely because you were able to channel your own emotional struggles right through your writing that that gave you the outlet that allowed you then to like blossom as a human being but it was very clear from what you were describing at the same time that like baseball wasn't doing that for you the kind of environment you were the kind of coaching you were in and the other thing i want to get to like so obviously the masculinity part is a piece there the militarization of the sport is a piece there but also like what about the fact that it seems to me that you're all as a minor leaguer especially but not exclusively there's constantly this in, intense competition between teammates, right? Like the people who are supposed to be, like we have this, this incredibly utopian understanding of sport that's taught to kids. Like sport's really pro-social, right? Because actually it's like, it's teaching you to be a teammate and like we need to be teammates in life. And, and don't get me wrong, like I think community is good and I think working together and collaborating is good, but I am not under the impression that the kind of culture of minor league sport has anything really to do with that kind of collaborative teamwork. It's a cutthroat world where you're fighting against your supposed teammate to be the one that gets to climb the ladder. Right. So I imagine that that has an impact. And on top of that, I'm also imagining that there's a health piece. Right. Because, I feel like I need uh, to write all this down so I can respond to it. That's OK. I'll, 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 I'll pull on these threads again. But the health piece I'm thinking of is like the coaches, especially at the minor league level, right? They want you to play through pain, I can only imagine. I'm thinking, especially as a pitcher, like this is something that I think maybe a lot of people don't realize because we're not talking about football here, right? On our show, we talk about football a lot and the fact that like we know that concussion, head injury, like this is obviously something deeply problematic when it comes to this sort of myth that sport is healthy. But what I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand is the physical trauma that pitchers are put through. Right, in order to achieve the kind of that those not, uh, low ninety fastballs and get the results you need, etc. Right, that's taking a real toll on your body. So I'm also curious on the extent to which you felt a kind of pressure to go beyond what your body maybe would have wanted you to do. Oh, okay. Well, let me you know, go anywhere you want with that. Masculinity. <laughs> I've got social norming. And, um, picture pain okay so let, the last one i just want to touch on there first was um so you know coaches don't really they don't say to you like you're hurt play anyways they say like well i know you're hurt but and, and you shouldn't play if you're hurt absolutely kid you shouldn't play if you're hurt but interesting you, you realize that you it's a, it's a, you know, it's a window we're dealing with here. I just got to tell you, kid, there's a, it's a window and, um, it's going to shut and you might help it shut faster. If you decide to sit this one out, you don't want to say that to you. They, they say that to you direct that. So that's how they'll put it to you. Yeah. It's not, it, it's kind of, I mean, it's, and it's not like they're not trying to be, maybe I'm making it sound more skeezy than it is, but, um, it's the reality of it. Mm. it's not so much that they're like um kid i just uh you know there <laughs> die for me boy you know it's not that it's um it's really just that it's the truth uh you mm -hmm. know i i had one of the guys that i lived with in portland chip ambries fantastic guy oh my god i loved him to death black and 
felt that if he got hurt, he would fall into this stereotype about black athletes, specifically black baseball players, that they like to milk injury. And so, so he did not like to, if he got hurt, he wouldn't go to the training room. So they wouldn't write down that he was hurt. He would go home and he would like jerry rig all this kind of stuff together to treat himself elevation ice stem and so he was afraid that he would perpetuate the stereotype because there's got to be a reason why there's only so few actual black players the rest are dominican players you know and um yeah i mean i'll let you cut the race however you want but that was his feeling and he talked to uh jody garrett and jody garrett felt the same way you know and you know talking about stanford guy right is talking about economic cross sections and stuff like this. And, um, you know, very spoke very articulate about it saying that, you know, he feels like there's a stigma and he's sensitive to that. And so you don't put yourself in a situation to, to make a name for yourself. And then you, you start hearing about guys who, okay, this is amazing. Like the, every player should do this. Every player should absolutely get to the majors and get hurt and then just take all the money and do nothing. I mean, they should, I mean, like, why wouldn't you? Because yeah. the, because it's it's so vilified that you would pull a Club Med. A, as a reference, that old Club Med, remember the yeah. old like, resorts? Well, Absolutely. Club Med is like when you go to the resort town on um, on the med list, like you're on the injured list and the reserve list, you still collect full benefits and salary. It all counts in your major league retirement package. You get your you know thousands every night. You get treated and flown everywhere. They got to put you up in a major league hotel, pay for all your medical stuff. It's all in the union package, man. You know, yeah. so if you can pull a club med, it's a free paycheck for a year. It just, I mean, you should do that. And so players would, what they will do is, is they will say like, uh, they'll call you into the office, the management will call you in the office and say, we're sending you down. Sorry. And you can be like, but ow, <laughs> uh, coming in here, I hurt my shoulder and gosh, golly gee, uh, it's retroactive to the time I was hurt, which would have been here in the majors. So you're going to have to put me on the injured list. Boom, club med. And you're not wow. better until you say you're better, right? So you could, if you got a full year to ride out, you ride the whole year out, make them release you. Of course, they won't most of the time. So this was a stigma that I think, you know, that, that uh, Chip had. I won't say all black players have. That's way too broad of a brush. But Chip definitely had it, and he felt that others had it too. So, and that derives from this kind of thinking of, you don't want to become that stereotype. You don't want to get branded as a thing. You have a limited shelf life to make money. You will always want to look strong because then when you do sign that contract, that big, big contract, there'll never be any questions about your health or your work ethic. So all this is kind of, a you know, together as a nexus. And if you think that I've sat down and put it all into like a tabular list to explain it perfectly, I haven't. So you just wrestle with that however you feel. But uh, that is kind of the business side of, quote unquote, masculinity at the main. Yeah. Level. And actually just to, to cut in on there, because I think that what you're saying about race is really powerful because the, the issue here is not about the the tendencies of like racialized players. The issue is what you're saying. It's like it's a stereotype. That's fundamentally the problem here is that there's this idea that exists in this culture. Uh, and I think that like historically, there are ways in which I I might compare, I, I'm less familiar with it in my own research, but like we certainly know in Canadian hockey, right? There's an intense culture of whiteness that makes it exceptionally yeah. difficult for racialized athletes. And I think in American baseball, historically, we see a quite similar phenomenon where it's a deeply white sport. As you say, it's changed. Like there are a lot of 
players coming from Latin America. There have always there have been black, long been black players. We obviously know this well. We have the whole kind of utopian Jackie Robinson story, as if on some level we have, as if we've kind of like resolved racial tension in American history because we integrated <laughs> baseball. Robinson, and it's bullshit. Yeah. Right, He's exactly. Sense, it's, right? Yeah. it's right. bullshit. And the reality is that there is racism that continues to exist in baseball culture, just like I, I would say that it exists in Canadian hockey culture. And then what you're describing for me are the lived consequences of that, which are so horrifying, right? We have an individual who is struggling through the conditions of minor league baseball, which you've so eloquently described. And on top of having to struggle through everything you're talking about, that person also has to combat this idea that as a racialized person, they are somehow like, inherently deficient, right? And so therefore, they're not allowed to look after their bodies at all, because that's yet another barrier that's constructed in, in terms of the ability to advance, like, which is, and that's the thing, this is what you, we, I, I keep coming back to and hearing what you're saying. It's so difficult to make it to the end of the line, right? Like you, you invest all these years, all of this sacrifice, and so few actually get that payoff. And so this is what you were telling me. It's like, you're, you're saying that when the coaches tell you this is your window, it's not just that they're trying to push you to do it, but also that it's reality, right? And so I, I get it. Like players have a real, what you're telling me is that players have a realistic understanding of how difficult it actually is to make yep. it to the majors and what they have to give. And they're not wrong about that because the system has been constructed. So it's perfect actually for the major league teams because they get you to maximize your productivity and everything else and sacrifice every part of your life to invest yourself in the game to become the player they need you to be at the major league level ultimately right but they don't have to pay you to do that they just have to dangle this carrot as you've put it before right they dangle the carrot and that's enough to get all these players to cultivate all these skills and ultimately you have the major league baseball talent pool that you need at the end of the line yeah there's very little um, inculcation actually required from uh -huh. major league it's the conditions that's what you're telling me exactly it's not actually ideological it's actually the conditions of baseball it's like the the or the the way in which there is i i think this is um you may not be a marxist like me but i want to i'm going to call on some of this language like this is marx talks about the reserve arm the industrial reserve army in terms of how all labor operates right like actually unemployment is not a bad thing for capitalism unemployment is a good thing for capitalism because if you have a bunch of people who are not currently employed they're going to put pressure on those who do have jobs to work mm -hmm. harder to right you're going to mm -hmm. deflate wages and that's what you're really talking about here like you have all of these people who under have a perfectly rational understanding of how the system works and because of their perfectly rational understanding they will give everything of themselves to make it to the end and so it kind of compromises like it makes sense that major league baseball could condone a union at the top level right but not at this lower level because they need this sacrifice at the lower level. And maybe they wouldn't extract as much value ultimately from these other, from the, from the minor league players um, if they actually gave them the kind of working conditions human beings really require to thrive as human beings as opposed to as baseball players, which is what they're looking for. I'll let you, I think you've, you've cracked the fucking code, man. Okay. <laughs> no, I, mean, I think there's a lot of really sound reasoning there um and even as you say it i'm like oh shit you know it's uh it's pretty it's pretty evident um that that's i to what degree i don't know but a large part of that is actually happening but baseball players don't think of it that way they don't see it that way they don't feel it that way um and the truth is is that there's not a screaming clear-headed uh, body of people around baseball players saying, 
it's a trap. <laughs> you know, it's not happening. Yes, yes. Uh, no one's out there screaming it. In fact, you know, it's funny. It's like I, I just started this new gig, and in every job that I take, and look, man, I mean, it's a pretty sad job compared to what I was. You know, I remember the first job I took, I was like director of media relations for a software company. And uh, I just wrote SEO content. And it was humiliating and demoralizing. I mean, I was a three time or two time bestseller by this point, take this job. And I'm writing like clickbait about how to do cash versus credit accounting payroll stuff, you know. And I'm in a cubicle farm and they got a white noise machine. And I'm just thinking, how the fuck did I get here? You know, from the big leagues to the cubicle, right? That's where I'm at now. How did this happen? Surely I screwed something up. I took a wrong turn somewhere and I tumbled down the rabbit hole and here I am in, in like cubicle farm hell and uh, I'm getting browbeat by the accountants for not getting the terminology correct. And, and, and then someone comes over to me and he's just like, hey man, Gosh, you played in the baseball. You played in the major baseball leagues. That must have been amazing. You sports ball real good, huh? Golly, tell me <laughs> about it. And I'm thinking, like, I hated this person when I was playing, hated it. But this is the only person I have left to deal this currency with now. It's the only person who's who is interested in what I have to do now. It's it's. I finally found like a safe harbor to go into. And the crazy thing is, is you are. You're so, it feels like they're everywhere when you're trying to get to the top, right? They're everywhere. People are interested in what you do. They really want you to make it. It's such a noble dream. It's so cool. You're going to do it. You're going to be one of the few. It's so awesome. It's so sexy. Wow, my gosh. And then you get there. It's a blip on your life and you get pooped out the other side. And, and like it's now you, send, you just see it clearly what everybody else does for a living and the value of your time and you know, how to piece a life together and so forth. Look, I'm not, I don't ever want to sound like I'm telling people not to chase their dream. I'm just saying, be prepared, you know, um, hedge your bet, stuff like that. I think you had touched on earlier is that this kind of like this indoctrination starts earlier from coaches and the, you know, this masculinity type thing yes. where you got to suck it up and chase it and um, never look back and whatever. I, I think that there's a time in our life where we all have to like go after something and go after it hard and not overthink it. But those times are far and few between, honestly, in my experience. Uh, and when you find that you are on a life track where that is required form of thinking, you're in a cult. You yes. know, when you have to dispel all reason and logic, you're in a cult. And so a lot of a lot of athletes at their best are in a cult to me. You know, they're, they're surrounded by people who tell them what they want to hear to make the belief system work. And I think that, yes, I think that, no, I think that's right. That's, I think that's really well put. Um, and it, it, it brings me to another question I was going to ask, which was about your experiences. Cause like you've also had the experience of being a big time commentator, right? Um, like <laughs> big time. You know, well, no, no, I'm, I'm serious. You know why? Because I'm from Toronto. So I actually know exactly what you did. Um, and you know, for, for some people who may not know like what sports net, I don't know. I've never heard of sports at sports ball, sports net, who knows what that is, but actually, no, that's, that's one of Canada's national broadcasters for sports, right? It's ES, it's an, it's an ESPN or like a Fox. Right, yeah, I, I did both of them. Yeah. Uh, sports net, which would have been like your big player up there. They own everything. And then absolutely PSN, which would be like the second place. Exactly. Of it. Yeah. Sportsnet owns the Blue Jays. I mean, because yeah. Rogers owns the Blue Jays. Sportsnet is a Rogers company. So yeah, you're like you're the official broadcaster. In fact, 
And it, but it goes a bit beyond that because like the Jays now are the only team in Canada, right? So your market is actually the whole country and it's literally marketed that way. So it's not like being, you know, in, in one small US market. It's like being all, in all of Canada. It's a big deal. So I'm curious in part because what you're talking about is like if we have this cult mentality, right? This idea that like no one's allowed to tell the truth, in other words. And so we, everyone's right. kind of getting indoctrinated. You were in a position to kind of speak about publicly, to speak about baseball, to, you know, like the, I mean, this is the kind of um, romantic idea that, um, the romantic idea that a lot of uh, people have about, um, like the, the Don Cherry idea in Canada is sort of like kids, like, listen to me, kids, I'll teach you how to be a hockey player, right? Or whatever. And there's <laughs> this romantic idea I'm that's what the commentator so does, sure is like, would teach, teach you. people how to watch the sport or understand a sport or whatever else. Did you feel like you could tell the truth about what was happening in baseball, minor league baseball, when you were a commentator? No. Sorry, should I elaborate? <laughs> uh, no, um, you, you can't um, because people don't want to hear it. The ability to talk about what you go through in baseball for real is not something that's really palatable to fans. And let's go back to that thing that I said right at the very beginning about how when you're a kid, you don't envision yourself thinking, gosh, I hope I'm a really mediocre minor leaguer someday. Wouldn't that just be awesome? Now I could tell every, every one of my friends I was kind of kind of good, but not really and completely forgettable. That's the dream because it's not. It's not the dream. <laughs> no. You know, the dream is to be amazing and at the top of your game and be loved by everyone and to be rich and to be whatever the hell it is you imagine being at the top of baseball is, which for most of us is what we see on TV every night or what we hear about every night, what makes headlines when we watch it. You know, when we dress up in our little superhero pretend costumes and play little league, and then we go home at night and we do a walk-off home run and we make the sound that the crowd would make and we feel the love that we think our superhero friends feel. When you say that it's not really like that, not only do people not want to hear it, they get mad at you for it. Mm -hmm. uh, case in point, you know, the, the, the biggest reaction, the most common reaction is, is that um, when you talk about how hard the job is, especially in the minors, how hard life is in the minors, the most common reaction is people like, you want to see a hard job? Come do my fucking job, pal. You know, come, come sit in my cubicle. Come grind it out with me. Uh, you know, come, uh, come shovel dirt or whatever, uh, you know, dig ditches and uh, lay pipe or something like that. And I always think, yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a hard job. I'm not saying it's not a hard job. I'm saying this is a hard job too. And there, there's this light at the end of the rainbow that I might make it to the big leagues. But the reality of it is, is that having been there and come out the other side, the reality of it is, is it's not always as great as you think. Because as, as wonderful as that moment is, and everybody says the same thing, they all say the same thing. God, if I could just suit, out, suit up and go out there for one game. Yeah, if you could leave your life now, go out, be a big leaguer for a day and be loved for a day, like a make-a-wish type thing, and then go back to your regular life, that would be awesome. But that's not how you get there. It isn't. You've got to be amazing and sacrificial. Um, you have to have a... a an obscure amount of talent, really, and then grind it out, probably for years. Um, you've got just as good a chance if you have a good signing bonus versus not having a good signing bonus, really. Um, 
you know, most, most of you will go into debt to get there. You're going to miss the birth of a child. You know, I've seen that plenty of times. Like there's a lot of trade-offs that you have devalued or have taken for granted. When you look at a minor league baseball player, major league baseball player, and say, I don't want to hear you whine, you have the dream life. Well, I didn't always. And in fact, I had a nightmare for several years where doing what you're doing, laying, being a pipe fitter and being part of a union with a $70,000 a year paycheck looked pretty damn great and great benefits. And, you know, I could be home every night. I didn't get that. So, so yeah, like, you know, don't look at a professional athlete and say like, you have no right to whine because you get to be on TV at some point, maybe. That's stupid, stupid argument. The second thing is, and I hear this a lot, is when you talk that way about sports, you're crapping on my child's dream. How dare you crap on the dream of a little child? You know, it's like, it's like telling, I don't know, it's like telling evangelicals, it turns out there's really no God, you know, I mean, like, it's sacrilege or something to that uh, respect. And um, it's worse than that. It's, it's like, it's not even just sacrilege. It's like you sinned against God and America, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> like it's that kind of thing. That's um, our podcast in a nutshell, Dirk. Right. That's our podcast in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's gross. It's, it's stupid to think that way because, you know, if you're, if you're a parent and you really care about your child's dream, you, it's your job to temper it. And it's not your job to facilitate their dreams. It's your job to facilitate a healthy, balanced, successful life, right? And that's, that is probably not going to be the result of chasing pro sports. Just look at the fucking numbers, okay? Like, look at the data on that. How many kids actually make it? And if you want your kid to be strong and resilient and an overcomer and learn how to deal with adversity, there are so many ways to teach that. So many ways. Don't make, don't, don't crucify me to keep with our our vernacular here, just yep. because I told you the truth about what it would be like if you actually made it into pro sports. So, so when I was doing the commentating stuff, and there, I mean, there's so much I could tell you about that world. Uh, but when I was doing the commentating stuff, uh, I was, I was both loved and hated because I would tell it like it really was, you know, and mm-hmm. I don't mean, I don't mean that in like, I tell it like it is like Rush Limbaugh tells it like it. No, he doesn't. He's, you know, like he tells oh, it's it was yeah. horrible, you know, skewed garbage. Um, I would try to tell it honestly. Um, and you know, people hated that. They hated that. Uh, but they yeah. also, they also liked it, you know? And so really the only way that I felt that I could do a good job of a commentator, given what I knew about the game was to play like a heels role, you know, to, to like, let Greg Zahn talk about the way the game ought to be played, you know, and this kind of like masculine bravado. I mean, they used to call him the manalist, right? Not oh the analyst. God. He was the manalist. What kind of yeah. dystopia are you sharing with? This is like, it's so, I mean, a lot of our viewers, our listeners are not, not going to be familiar with this specific context, but for those <laughs> who are, like, the idea that you were the heel and Greg Zahn was the hero was is the like hero. the most horrifying thing I've ever heard. Yeah, like, you know, Don Cherry, when they finally, okay, you know, there's a, that's a great conversation, right? So, um, so a certain analyst that I played with who shall not be referenced, we would show up and he'd be hung over at some of the broadcasts and he would aggressively make comments to some of the girls about him and his wife being in an open relationship. And he would oh God, watch, geez. he would watch porn on his oh laptop we, we'd be mic'd up you know and there'd be, you'd be watching watch porn on his laptop are like, you kidding me oh I'm my not, god i'm not kidding you and and i remember um 
being this is that this is like a great locker room talk moment yes. like yes, 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 yes. right where it's like like this is okay yeah like this is stuff that i would expect to see in in the locker room in fact in every major league locker room i was ever in there is one bathroom stall in every major league clubhouse bathroom that has usually a tupperware container of porn right it's just no how way. it is no I mean, see i did i did not know that that's oh. that's yeah, that's that's how it is. Um, oh my lord! And that would just be in there, and you know, is how it was. And it was a tradition that kind of started as early as like Double A. I'd started noticing in that it was in Triple A too, and then finally you get to the big leagues, and almost there's there's always a bucket of it someplace, right? Um, so this is the kind of stuff that I expected to see in that world. I did not expect to see it in the pro broadcaster world, right? I didn't expect to see it next to me on a laptop. You know, while I'm like mic'd up and the cameras, you know, they're not hot, but they're there. They could be. This is the kind of behavior that's like plutonium, right? I mean, this is the kind of shit that ends careers for everyone on the panel if it if it makes it out, right? Yes. And, yes. And I'm like, I'm uncomfortable by this, right? Yeah. And should, right? And should, yeah, and should, should end I'm careers. Like, the truth is, is like. I was uncomfortable as hell because I knew how bad this could be, given the high profile nature of it. Any idiot should know this, right? Um, mm -hmm. So I go and I'm like, I need to go talk to my manager about it. So I go and I talk to the manager who hired me and I'm telling them, I'm explaining them that one of the broadcasters is like, you know, doing this stuff and I'm uncomfortable. And, and this is in Canada, okay? And yep. I, I don't mean to single you out here, but I, you know, I, I think Canadians really do take pride in the fact that they don't behave like the caveman bullshit that they see these like gun toting American redneck, whatever, like our behavior that when I worked up there, that was a thing. Like, how can you guys have so many guns? Like, you know, how, why do you behave this way? Why can't you be more civil? That was a thing. I remember this. No, you're right. And just, just as a quick sidebar, because I absolutely want to get back to your story, but like, this is why there's like a reckoning in the NHL right now in the hockey world, right? Because it's such a core Canadian thing. And we have these discourses of multiculturalism and a so-called like, and I, I, I'm not, this is not being critical of feminism. It's a so-called feminist prime minister. I'm being critical of the prime minister, not of feminism when I say that, right? But like, we have all these like, this kind of public logic that, as you say, Canada is this comparatively utopian progressive place compared to the right. United States. I think you're right. absolutely right. That's Proud the of that. logic. Yes. Proud of that. Like, is, there's definitely a comparison thing happening. There's a book up there, like, uh, I can't remember who wrote it, but it talked about like, you know, we're your little brother, you know, you were the pot, you know, like, like making, taking pot shots at America, which is deserved. Like yeah, America yeah, yeah. is a fucking catastrophe right now. I mean, unbelievable, you know, like what, what, what we're up to, the stuff that we try and just the, the, the press conferences for the president, for God's sakes, deserve all your vitriol. Just have at it. It's your field day. Exactly. But okay, then, get back to this. In yeah. that particular moment, I go and I tell my manager what's happening and that I'm uncomfortable. And the responses, his response is, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry to hear that. I can't, I am just so sorry to hear that. And I'm like, well, you know, thank you. I appreciate that, but I just don't know what to do. And he goes, oh, no, no, no. I'm sorry to hear that you're uncomfortable with it because if I say anything and I kind of have to, you're going to be the one that gets fired. They said that to you directly? Yes. Yeah. Like, oh, my Lord. Like, like what? And they're like, yeah, well, you know, I mean, it's kind of the culture of those guys and he's, you know, the, he's a big guy and, you know, kind of an entity or whatever. And, 
and like that's just how it's going to be and um and i'm i'm really sorry so i guess you know do you really have a problem with it you know it's one of those moments like are you really hurt because there's a window on this right it slipped shut you know and i'm like yep Oh no, I don't have a problem. Yes, it'll just locker room talk. I can handle it. <laughs> you know, like I'm like, right. that's where I go. And I'm like, I don't, I don't want to say anything about it. So fast forward a few years, and that person is like, their behavior gets them fired, right? And the yeah. the company line from Sportsnet is like, if we would have known about this behavior, and I'm like, fucking, you guys knew. You've, I mean, you it's knew. And you've always known, and you know even now who is and who isn't, right? No. But as long as like it's not an issue, then you don't need to address it. And 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 when the only way it's going to become an issue is if there's like a social outrage that pushes it. It's like when Don Cherry got f- fired up there. Yep. You know, yep. like who in their right mind didn't know what he was about? Like that was a sudden realization that anyone had, you know, like that he was, he was questionable, like his, you know, his, his like integrity or ethics or the commentary was questionable. It was always questionable. It was just the right time to sacrifice somebody on the altar for the greater integrity of the company. So in sports, like, uh, I, I, I played the heel insofar as I was like, this guy's not Superman. He's human. There's numbers. You know, like JP or in Sebia. Um, JP or in Sebia yep. is a great example. This is this is a catcher who I played with in the minors. Um, he came up to the big leagues and he became he became the cliche big league guy very quickly. Fell in love with himself, loved the sound of himself on media, um, had some some success real quick, but then he struck out so much that it became obvious it wasn't gonna sustain. But the the swoon had not yet crested, right? So fans were still in love with this particular player because of the early production and the thought that he might go on to do it forever and what that would mean for Canada and having this great um, player. And of course he was very engaged with the media. So he's kind of a media darling. And here's Dirk Hayhurst, sour grapes, minor league loser, who really hadn't done anything with his career except write a book whining about the minors saying he's not <laughs> going to make it, right? He's not going to be very good. He strikes out too much. This guy's a jackass, right? And right. of course, what did he do, you know? And so I guess when you, when it feels kind of soulless, but when you do professional broadcasting, you kind of have to broadcast to the mood of the fan base at the time. Because if you don't, People get they get fed up with you really quickly, and of course, if you poo-poo careers and their potential, um, players don't give you access anymore because they want to be surrounded by members of the cult, just like fans want to be surrounded by members of the cult. So while we think that this cross section of ideas and reality and looking at people objectively it, it makes for good sports entertainment, if you look around, it it does only really in small batches. Because when you crap on someone's hero, when you, even if you're just using logic and facts or numbers, and and honestly, like sports stats are random number generating machines. I mean, they change every night and we build narratives out of them. That's all sports broadcasting is. But if you take that side of it for too long, you you become nuclear, you're toxic and you have to go. Um, And of course, it doesn't help that you go on record saying you're uncomfortable with some of the people that you work with for whatever reason. But 
Yeah. So the, my experience with broadcasting was very much that way. And if you do it, if you find that kind of harmony with it, with kind of giving people what they want and picking your shots on how to criticize, you know, you'll be worshipped for doing nothing except giving commentary. And when you have millions of people adoring you and hanging on your every word and repeating what you say to other people as a point of fact, the thing, what it can do to your ego dwarfs anything that like sports success can do to your ego. In fact, at least when you're on a field producing a result that requires skill and ability as much as it requires luck and opportunity, at least you've fucking done something. Broadcasters, <laughs> broadcasters just play the hits, you know, like, and m- some of them have done nothing and they're just amazing and loved. And basically they just tell you what you want to hear. And they're that's, really good that, at it. That's, am- that's incredible stuff. Um, and I, I just want to follow up on the point that the, the, this painful story you told us about, um, you know, the, the, how entrenched the, kind of misogyny and masculine toxic kind of masculinity is in this sport. What I'm hearing there is, you know, we have all this discourse about reckoning or reckoning, you know, and what we hear all the time, it's just happening in hockey again right now, like apologies, right? Oh yeah, I'm sorry. I'm going to learn something. I'm sorry. You know, I made a mistake. I shouldn't have said that. And you can see how much bullshit that is, right? When you tell a story like this, like this is, this is the world of the locker room of professional sport. Um, and if we're serious about challenging that form of masculinity, uh, it's going to take way more work than a pat apology here or there, right? Like this is a fundamental structural problem with how we have organized sporting culture. Um, and it's not going away anytime soon. So we have to take this way more seriously than even we are starting to take it today. I'm like, your story, it's fascinating. Your story is not about the locker room in that sense, but it's, it's about this appendage to the locker room and it almost tells us more. Um, it's incredible. So thank you so much for sharing that. Um, and Dirk, thank you so much for your time today because this was, this was really so fascinating that I have to say, we got, we got to have you back on the show again to, to talk more because we barely, <laughs> we barely scratched the surface of what I wanted to talk about here. Um, I know, I, I only got like two of your questions. Like you had like a list of like 20 questions. I got like two of them done and I feel terrible about there that. You go. No, 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 no. This is, this is, this is everything I was hoping for. So thank you so much and, and all the best to you and your family and the new job um, confronting these unbelievable conditions that we're all living right now. <laughs> well, thanks you too. And uh, same to all your listeners out there. Um, you know, chin up one foot in front of the other and keep plugging away, you know, keep grinding it out. Thank you for listening to another episode of the end of sport podcast. If you enjoy the show, please feel to like share and leave a review. And as always, you can reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at end of sport pod.